Portland, Oregon, October 11th, 1980. 29-year-old Sherry Ayers is found dead inside of her downtown Portland apartment, clearly the victim of a violent murder. Several weeks later, after a similar double murder, police focus their attention on one man connected to the victims. Randall Brent Woodfield. Over the next eight months, Woodfield would go on to conduct one of the most vicious crime sprees in American history, leaving a line of robberies, rapes, and murders in his wake, and terrorizing those along the Pacific Coast Interstate 5 corridor. However, in Wisconsin, Woodfield's case was eagerly watched for a second reason as well, due to his connections to one of the state's most iconic institutions, the Green Bay Packers. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode 12 of Badger Bazaar. Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers? <laughs> Aaron Rodgers. Is that Aaron, why you paused? Right. I thought you just didn't know what to say to that. I said Aaron. Good old, good old number 12. Good old Aaron Rodgers. It is, it is football season. That's Obviously, that's going to be on our mind now for the next six months or so. But I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. How you doing, Mick? I'm good. Yeah. It is football season. Was at the game this past Sunday. Ties in a little bit to what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, it does. So, interesting. One of the things that we talk about a lot on this show is kind of documentaries that we like to watch and things that kind of, uh, I don't know if they inspire us. They kind of do as as creators. <laughs> Documentaries they, about serial killers really, inspire us. They don't inspire us to do things. Oh, they just okay. inspire us to like maybe be storytellers. So now is not the time to talk go. about the bodies yeah, in my backyard. Let's, let's be, just be quiet about that. Oh, they. Oh, I'm sorry. But on today, September 21st, Netflix is dropping a brand new 10 part series on Jeffrey Dahmer. And we've mentioned a few other serial killer ones. That I've watched a couple, you've watched a couple, but this one sounds good and it kind of hits home a little bit. No doubt. And actually... Uh, I wonder if you people have heard of Jeffrey Dahmer, maybe? Once or twice, I think. Maybe here he, in Wisconsin. He did a thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. Um, but right, a, a couple months ago, I watched a documentary on John Wayne Gacy called The Gacy Tapes. Um, and Netflix is coming out after this. They have another Dahmer show coming out called The Dahmer Tapes. It's all about him. 
talking about stuff with his own, obviously his own voice. That one. So I that's heard why it's called Top. So that's coming out right. too. I think that comes out in November. But today drops um, the ten part series. I think they're. I think it's bingeable. I think they're all being dropped today on the same time. This ten part series um, on called Net- on Dahmer on Netflix. On Netflix. Okay. Yep. Actually, it's called Dahmer Monster: The Jeffrey Dahmer Story. Because Eileen Warnos kind of has the monster, right? Which is still kind of an odd name. It's called Dahmer Monster. monster. Yeah. The Jeffrey Dahmer story. Well, they throw it's the monster term with the serial killers a little too easily. Right. So, anyway, it's it based on, uh, there's an article in the Huffington Post that I want to read here. And Evan Peters, who is amazing. Yeah, he's I love He's a great actor. American Horror Story. Right. He's in, I think he's in every season of American Horror Story playing a different character. He is phenomenal. I think you're right. I think he's in every season. It's like episode, or it's season 11 or 12 now. And he's, I think he is not missed a season. Yeah, even he does. Evan Evan Peters does great great work. He plays massively dark roles. Oh right, but so he was in is, Marvel and everything. Yeah. So this is this is kind of tailored for him. Um, but the Huffington Post here says no stranger to macabre characters. Actor Evan Peters is embodying one of history's most notorious serial killers for a new TV series. The American Horror Story star plays the role in Dahmer Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. On Friday, Netflix unveiled the first trailer for the 10-episode series showing a chilling exchange between Peters' Dahmer and neighbor Glenda Cleveland, portrayed by Niecy Nash, who's also a very well-known actress. It's co-created by Ryan Murphy, who said he aimed to, quote, shine a spotlight on the as-yet-untold stories of Dahmer's victims, the people who tried to stop him, and the systemic failures that enabled him to continue his murderous spree for over a decade. Isn't Ryan Murphy one of the American Horror Story guys? Other actors set to appear in the series include Richard Jenkins, Michael Leonard, and Molly Ringwald. That's wow. an interesting... I don't know if, if uh, Ryan Murphy... I think he is attached to the American Horror Stories. I, I believe he is. Well, that would, that would you know, that, obviously that would make an Evan Peters connection to... Right. Right. And the dark side of life. So the Wisconsin-born Dahmer, alternately known as the, quote, Milwaukee cannibal, unquote, and the, quote, Milwaukee monster... I've never heard Milwaukee Monster. I haven't either. I've That's never not heard that at either. all. I don't like that one. Murdered and dismembered 17 men and boys from 1978 to 1991. He also committed necrophilia and cannibalism on several of his victims, many of whom were people of color and some underage. So that is... You may definite. have heard of this before. And, oh yeah, maybe there's mention of it in the opening credits to our podcast, actually. You hear... His voice, yes, his voice is in there, right? Right. And, well, just reference to Dahmer and everything. So he's kind of notorious. So because of this, there's been just today. I've seen all kinds of stuff online about Dahmer, and I was wondering why because I didn't know about this, and this is why because this is dropping on Netflix. But it's a, it's not a documentary. It's, it's not a, a documentary. It's a dramatization. It's out, a show, right? Right. right. But yeah. I mean, if anyone's going to make it come to life, it's Evan Peters. And it seems like there's been a lot of people, obviously younger people who didn't know that Dahmer didn't get the death penalty. They just assumed that he was executed. And Wisconsin has no death penalty. No, but right? he was... So, but he's dead. Brutally he murdered, was murdered in, in prison. In prison, yeah. So he only actually served, I think, three years or something before but, he was killed. Because prisoners have standards, and those it's typically pedophiles and rapists. And yes, I may have been... Prisoners little, have standards? It may so, have been a little tongue-in-cheek when I said that. Sometimes I'm sarcastic if you haven't picked up on that. It seems weird that prisoners... They attack those types of guys, the serial killers or the rapists 
or the child molesters. It seems like these guys who are murderers and do other horrific illegal activity, they don't stand for those kinds of actions. So good for them. Because he killed minors? I don't know. I'm not saying there's logic. (laughs) I think from what I understand, what happened is that the guy killed him because he wanted notoriety for himself. Because he wanted to be oh, the guy well, that, 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 that right. killed Jeffrey Dahmer. Right, like why guys kill presidents. And he's already in prison, so why not be famous? Right, if you're not prison? getting out, what do you got to lose? Yeah. You know, you hear that a lot with, you know, inside prison walls, the guys that are going to be there forever. Some well, guys do that to get on death row. Well, sure, because you know? they, they just don't, they can't kill themselves because they're not allowed to and they want a way out. But some guys might earn favor with other prisoners by killing a guy like sure, that. Sure, sure, there's, there's definitely... Um, those kind of circles in prison. No Thank doubt. God we don't necessarily understand because we don't have that life experience. We, we're just speculating. Thank God we don't know from having been there. I expected a little bit of a smile from you. I do know. Are a couple, you hiding? Something? I do know a couple mur- people have, that have murdered. Did you hang out with them so. while you were in prison? Because no. you're not smiling at all. <laughs> I'm suddenly scared I in did. my own house. I didn't. So I'm just thinking maybe we could bring one in and interview him. You That'd know, be we'll great. Just... <laughs> While he's still in prison, long too, as if possible. As long as we're in your house. That, yeah. yeah, great. Yeah, they don't fucking know where you live, so shit. So that that sounds super interesting if I wasn't I like here. a Zoom interview maybe more. Sure, yeah. Please? Thank you. And and if they don't know your address, we'll be sure not that, to tell I them. would, yeah, thank you. I, <laughs> I mean, I'll be as nice as hell. You've never seen me be this nice. If it does come to my house. Definitely going to check that out. I think if I wasn't here right now, I'd probably be checking that out tonight. So, Sorry for holding you back. Uh, no, no no problem. Uh, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to it eventually. <laughs> but um, something else that is, you know, we're, we're heading into October pretty quick, you know, and that's always fun, right? We got spooky season coming up. Yeah, baby. There is a hotel in Wisconsin. There's more than one. There is more than one hotels in Wisconsin. Hotels. <laughs> Grammar is hard. Um, but this particular hotel, which is in Humbird, Wisconsin, which never is in Clark it. County, it's just north of Black River Falls. Have who, you ever heard of that? I've never heard of Humbird. Me either. I've heard of Black River Falls. <laughs> Good. As of you. Right, yes. right. We did a show kind of on it. Yeah. Right. Super unique town. Just north of Black River Falls in Clark County, uh, this town called Humbird. And this hotel is for sale. And this is for some reason has been all over the country. It's it's in the Sacramento Bee. It's in Realtor.com. It's in Entrepreneur Magazine about this hotel being for sale that is reportedly haunted. We've never heard of Humbird, and yet papers all over the country are referring to it, so that's kind of interesting. So it says this company, this is, this is from the Sacramento Bee, obviously from Sacramento, California. This comfy hotel has hit the real estate market. One caveat... It might be haunted. Which is why everyone's talking about it. A fan of all things supernatural and aren't timid? Question mark. Then this hotel that's landed on the real estate market in Humbird, Wisconsin, for $279,900 might be right up your alley. That's all it costs. Two hundred eighty grand, man. It could for be yours. For a hotel? Wow. It's in Humbird. Oh. Just because I never heard of it doesn't mean it's not a metropolitan... <laughs> Paradise. I guarantee you it's not. The property. <laughs> Never cons- heard of it, and yet that's probably a safe guarantee. Yeah. The property consists of a six bedrooms and five bathrooms over 5,500 square feet. That's a hotel? The residence even comes with its own living quarters that is 1,800 square feet. 
However, the listing on Realtor.com says that not only have there been multiple reports from owners and guests of supernatural activities, but the hotel was investigated by a Minnesota ghost hunter group. It's so old and beautiful, right? Lots of places have been investigated by ghost hunter groups. I can vouch for that. Right. But this is from Minnesota, so it's probably not legit. No oh, it's, it's so old and beautiful, unquote, listing agent Julie Bonob told Realtor.com, and people have experienced supernatural things in there, even the owners. Bonob, who is with Bonob Realty LLC, even mentioned a specific startling thing that occurred with the current owners of the hotel. Quote, they were sitting in the bar, and there was this hanging light, and it started to move when they were sitting below it, unquote. Bonob told Realtor, Quote, one person got up and stopped it from moving and said he could feel the force of somebody pulling it, so he sat down and it just continued to spin. Outside of haunted happenings, the building has had numerous updates and has plenty of appealing features, including an open floor concept, two living rooms, detached two-car garage, and a new outdoor wood burner. Thank you, Realty.com. And apparently a swinging chandelier. So I don't know how this place has made national headlines because it, there's a swinging chandelier that's really the basis of calling it haunted there must be a history to it that we haven't looked into there's yet. a history to it that's not i can't find it anywhere really i mean you're the guy with the resources and that's that's weird that you couldn't find it which maybe that's just a testimony to the fact that there isn't much there i've spent little time looking i'm sure you know if i minutes. if i went to clark county i could find the history of this place but it's just interesting that this for this hotel which is kind of nondescript when you look at it and your house of it. it sounds like your house is as big as oh it's 5500 square feet that's not my house my house is but six bedrooms and how many baths i mean that sounds like a just a fairly big house but it sounds like it's not big enough to be a hotel is all i'm saying well it's an inn it's, it's a, old and it's an older place obviously sure right? i mean a lot of those places those it was built in 1869 or something I guess so that's a lot old. of those yeah, right, places yeah. is probably on like an old stagecoach line sure you know so it was in it was an inn that uh there's a hotel in brilliant actually it's called the green hotel that was built probably roughly about the same time that's Probably not quite that big, and you know, that's a place that that we I investigated a paranormal investigation years ago. I don't know, eight eight years ago. Haunted as hell, haunted as freaking hell, and it was one of those small kind of hotels. It was on the it was on the rail line, so a lot of people that came into Brilliant in the late eighteen hundreds that came on the passenger train straight stayed at this place and that place. I can vouch guaranteed is as haunted as can be. So I'm not We will discount- cover that at, at some point. Well, sure, sure, yeah. we definitely can, yeah. I'm not discounting that this place is, is haunted. It probably is, but so is a lot of other places. Well, and to the point I'm making, Summerwind Mansion was meant for guests, too, and travelers, and it wasn't that much bigger than this place. So I guess at that age, hotels weren't the big extravagant places that I'm considering so that's my stupidity, I guess. No, summer when yeah, summer when it was built as a as a fishing lodge though. So it was right, built but for I mean, people to But it was still a lodge. I mean sure, an inn yeah. or whatever. I mean, so I'm just thinking of bigger places. That's on me. So this place was obviously a, a fairly large place for yeah, the Yeah, it's not it's not the Ritz Carlton, you know. Right. I mean it's 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 a, a in a hotel in eighteen sixty nine doesn't isn't like, you know, what we have today. It's not the hotels that. even that you talked about in your book. Lost Fox Cities, which I did finish. Thank you, man. That means a lot. And it was interesting. (laughs) And I even, that's why I got through it. I was actually able to be diligent enough to get through it. So yeah, good for me. 
for well, reading. Because I did not plug my book at all in this episode, no, so I'm, no. I appreciate you doing that. I, but I, I mean, it, so. there was a lot of things I didn't know about the Fox Cities that were. It was amazing, man. I, I'm I'm glad you're my friend anyway, but. I'm glad I'm doing a podcast with you. You're not an idiot. You know, the funny thing is when the publisher asked me to do that. I mean, you are an idiot, but not for that reason. When the publisher asked me to do that, they asked me to do a Lost Appleton. And I said, well, there's not enough things here in Appleton to finish a whole book. I mean, let's do Lost Fox Cities. And they said, okay, now that I've obviously done this, I could do 10 volumes of that on Appleton. Oh, no question about it. Because there was so many things about Menasha and Little Shoot and and Nina that, that are firsts in the world. Which is, I don't think most people born and raised here understand all that. Yeah, you, you, you covered it enough to shine light on it and make enlighten us on things that we wouldn't have known about that are first. I mean, there's so many things that happened here that didn't happen anywhere else before that. And yet you could have gone so much further had you wanted to. No doubt about been it. allowed to. Unique state, man. You know, this, yeah. this is why we do Even the podcast here. This is what we... What Crazy. we do it for, there's no place like Wisconsin. In, Good and bad. In various ways, right. Uh, you know, talking about dark history like we do here on this show, or just, you know, nor- various architectural history. I was already... Industry history, yeah. At, at, well, lumber mills and, and even the first, uh, you talk about the first uh, railway public tr- trolley was in, in Appleton. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, the first electric trolley. Right. Su- commercially successful electric right. trolley. Right. It didn't right. go very far, yeah. but it was still the first one in the country. Right. And right. I I mean, I read the book, man. It's it's just really worth reading. It's it's just fascinating history. There are so many things of Wisconsin when you hear, you hear the first in the world or the biggest in the Crazy. world. And you know, a lot of people just roll their eyes at that and they're like, whatever. Because you always hear Wisconsin when they're talking about something you hear, oh, this is the first in the world. This is the first in the country. This is the biggest in the country. Whatever well, it would have, be, how many, it's true. How many of those have it's we true. covered in just our podcast? Right. And then your book uncovered a bunch more that, well, that I didn't know about. So it's true. It's not bullshit. It's actually true. So much started here. It's amazing. Well, I appreciate the love, man. Yeah, I, it was really awesome. Do. Thanks, man. I'm actually looking forward to reading the other book now. I wasn't before because I'm not... As diligent a reader as I should be, but I really want to get into it. Maybe we should start a book about haunted hotels in Wisconsin and, and take a trip to uh, to Humbird. What, yeah. do you, what do you say? I, I, yeah. <laughs> so the I-5 killer. Now, there are few things... The I-5 bandit or killer. Right. Yeah. There are few things more quintessential Wisconsin, right, than the Green Bay Packers. Iconic franchise. Nothing is probably more associated with this state, maybe than cheese or dairy, than the Green Bay Packers. And right? if you didn't know, their season has started. So in, 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 in our mind, in Badger Bazaar's mind, what could be more quintessential Wisconsin than a serial killer on a, the Green Bay Packers. A serial killer, <laughs> A. Right? I mean, that is... Ex-Packer, that is, B. Ed Gein's got nothing on this guy, right? right? Dahmer has got nothing on this they guy. They weren't athletes right? like this guy, and they weren't Packers. Now, the the 1974 NFL draft was, was not real significant for the Packers on the field, right? You look at this draft, 1974. Except that I was born that year. 
You were born in 1974. I was, and that's all they cared about. But it was still a pretty insignificant draft for the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> and I'm guessing they thought for anything in 74. else. If you look at that draft, there's nothing that really stands out. Eric Torkelson is a guy that people might recognize. I know that name. You know, but other than that, Dave Dave Wanstead, the Packers yeah, drafted right, in the 15th right. round, never played a down for him, but he obviously went on to be a, a head coach for the Bears and the Dolphins. Not uh, a bad player either. Right. And I, I think he's still a college analyst. He's still on TV, very, right. very, you know, active in a well-known in football. A today. well-named coach in the NFL that people know. Yeah. But you know, their first-round draft pick that year was a guy named Barty Smith, who was a running back out of Richmond. You know, he played five or six years for the Packers, but nothing real significant coming out of that draft. And really, if you look at the the entire, Mickey and I are both football guys. You know, we know it. I think we know the history of it pretty well too. If you look at that 1974 draft. Nothing much really came out of that draft for the league in, in, general. in general. It's known as the worst quarterback draft ever. Danny White came out of that draft. That's about it. Right. The old cowboy quarterback. Right. Ed Tutal Jones was the first pick. Tutal. He was a big name. You know, right? he was a good player. Uh, Dave Casper is a name that people might should know here. Sure. He actually, he, he played high school ball at Chilton. And he was part of the, I think, you know, a lot of people considered one of the best high school teams ever who Never gave up a point that season. Serious? Imagine that. Really? They never gave up a point. I don't care if it's Chilton and they're what division over there. I don't care who you're playing. Right. I don't care what your opponents are. You didn't give up. You were un, you shut out they shut everyone. Out every team. They won their first game seven to nothing. Doesn't matter who you're playing. That's impressive. And then all the other games they won like forty-seven to nothing. 48 they shut everybody out they never gave up a point so unless it's high schoolers playing first graders right that's unbelievable so dave casper was on that team and and he wound up going to notre dame i think he won a national title at notre dame and then was drafted that year by the raiders and went on to be a hall of fame tight end but you know so that's a name you recognize but other than that that this draft that's three or four is nothing until you get to the pittsburgh steelers so this 1974 draft has got a lot of nothing in it. And then you look at the Steelers, and in that draft, they drafted Lynn Swan, oh. Jack Lambert. Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer. John Stallworth. Hall of Famer. And Mike Webster, all Hall four. Hall, Mike Webster from UW played at, right. played at Madison. Right, yeah. All four Hall of Famers they drafted in 1974. Nobody else got anything. And to note, since we're Packer fans, this was right in the middle or the early stages of the Packers sucking or being mediocre at best for a long time. This kind of this was right when it kind of started, right? right? Yeah, and then one, like ten years after when we started following sports, they were mediocre at best for throughout the eighties, and it was hard to watch. It was it was bad football. There was one player that the Packers drafted that year in 1974 in the seventeenth round. Stood out in his own way. Yes. And yes, there was seventeen rounds. Yeah. That remember Bart Starr was a seventeenth round draft pick. Right. You know. And, 56 or whenever he was drafted. That was actually part of the research I read. They actually made that comment. That yeah. Remember, Bart Starr was drafted in the 17th sure. round, too. You know, some people can make it, right. you know. Um, but this one guy that the Packers drafted turned out to be notable for other reasons off the field. Very notable. And it's kind of a pick that, you know, it's kind of hard to play the what-if, hard not to play the what-if game, you know, because that pick maybe changed a lot of destinies. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, you kind of look at how, how could fortunes have been changed here? How could futures have maybe been changed if things, 
might have worked out differently. You know, and in, in the Packers' defense, they don't talk about this guy. They don't want. They don't give interviews about this guy. They don't want anything to do with him. Other even than still, when they try even to get still, interviewed, right? You know? And to, I mean, maybe we'll get more into this later. But on one hand, there's speculation that we've researched that this might have deterred him from becoming what he was, as we'll go into. No question about it. That's what for, I mean. Is, for the little window, but it also, you know, like like Hitler, maybe a fair comparison. If Hitler would have been allowed into art school, I still believe a sociopath like that ends up doing what he does. But maybe he just gets deterred enough that he stops being the, you know, world-dominating killer that he became, and this guy maybe too. It's hard not to look at what what would have happened if maybe another team would have taken or something like that, you know? And we'll get it right. We'll get into more of that later. Or maybe he'd have killed another level. I mean, who knows? So the the 17th-round pick that we're talking about is a guy who was a wide receiver from Portland State University, right? Small school in Portland, Oregon, obviously. From Salem, Oregon, originally. Portland State University called named Randall Woodfield. Now, who is Randall Woodfield, and why is he significant? Born in Oregon, as Mickey said, Salem, Oregon. December 26th, 1950. Seemingly a very normal kind of idyllic childhood, right? His, he had a close family. Father was... Uh, an executive at Pacific Northwest Bell Phone Company had a good job. You know, they're upper middle class. They're, they live in a good neighborhood. Mother was a homemaker. That's similar to the upbringing I had. Right. He had two sisters, both of whom obviously intelligent. They grew up to be, well, I think one's an attorney and one's a one's a doctor. Doctor, right. Um, so you, there's nothing out of the ordinary here, right? Grew up with a good home, good family, good neighborhood. Um, they grew up in Otter Rock, Oregon. Which is about nine, eight miles north of, of Salem. But when Randall Woodfield was a child, there were some signs there that at least led his family to think that, you know, we need to we need to put him through a, at least a couple of sessions of therapy. They here. did actually realize They that. put him in with a therapist. Now, for one, he good was Good for showing, those parents. I mean, they tried. Good for the parents. Right. I, I, I think, and we'll, again, we'll get into this later, things kind of fell off the rails after that. Sure. But they noticed that, first of all, he, he displayed signs of anger, which was much more violent than a normal adolescent child would show. Um, which makes you wonder if it's born in D. I mean, that's something we'll go into also. Because this family showed no signs of dysfunction, whatever that means. You hear that a lot. Evidently, everybody else was well, well-rounded and, and well-evolved. And even he was, he was a good student. He was charming. He was well-liked. He had a lot of friends. All that up until high school when, as Scott's mentioning, he showed signs by the age of 11 of these other things. Right. But I just want to give that background that it normal, normal, or even better than normal because that's the kind of upbringing you and I had. Just good, decent people around us for the most part. Now, he showed these other signs that Mickey's talking about at a very young age to be sexually deviant. You know, at a, at around the late the age of eleven. Besides the anger, he was exposing himself to women, Adults. unsuspecting women. Right, right. At thirteen, he was caught peering into windows, and he was kind of known around his community as like as a peeping tom. Thirteen, right, and and exposing himself to women, but nobody, again, nobody really did much about this. The parents brought him to therapy, and the therapist said, "You know, this is." 
this is a child kind of trying to find themselves. That's normal sexually. for an adolescent boy. And and having come from a well-respected family that was charitable and, and just a, a decent part of the community, they just kind of wrote it off like, oh, that's just a boy being a boy. If he'd have come from a less well-to-do family or a family that had obviously obvious issues otherwise, they might have seen the red flags, but they just kind of passed so it off. The therapist chalked it up as to a boy exploring his sexuality. <laughs> now, this continued on, right? And so when he's in high school, he's finally arrested for exposing himself to some girls on a bridge. And he had numerous other contacts with law enforcement throughout his teen years because of this behavior, this sexually deviant behavior, starting when he was 11 years old, lasting now into high school. But there was something else about Randy. Randy was good at football. I like how you refer to him like your buddies. Right. Randy Randy was very good at football. Not only football, track. Just a great athlete. Basketball. Multi-sport. Baseball, right? And if you look at the old, like his hometown newspaper articles about him, it looked like, it looks to me like basketball might have been his real gig. But for some reason, football is what he chose. I don't know if he was pushed into that or if, or if he, that's what he wanted to play. Maybe the aggression of it. But, very good point. But in our society, lots of times when, when you're worth something to somebody, Right, your faults kind of get swept under the rug, and that's that's what happened here. Randall was protected. He was a football star at Newport High School in Oregon. He was athletic, obviously good looking, and his acts, these lewd acts that he was doing continually, had to be kept quiet for him to remain on the team. You couldn't have somebody like this on the football team. If this got out, people wouldn't. You know, he would have had to been kicked off. So not only were his actions um, kept quiet, all of his contacts with police and the fact that he was arrested when he was as young as 13, all of this, his entire record, when he turned 18, was expunged. Gone. So after graduating from Newport High School, he goes on to play football and basketball at Treasure Valley Community College in Ontario, Oregon, which makes me question why right away. So why? So he's this major athlete, right? He's very good very well-known throughout the community as this football star. Why is he going to Treasure Valley Community College, right? Why isn't he going to Oregon University? I'm sure he was. Why isn't he going to Oregon State? Even back then when, when scouting and all that, they didn't have the technology or the resources they have now. Even back then they would have heard of him by the sounds of it. Well, right. They would have They would have heard of him. And three. I mean, three years later, Right, he's he's getting drafted into the NFL, so he's good enough to play Division One right. right now. So, so why isn't he going to Oregon? As much as the coaches and everybody else shoo shooed these actions away, it must have still been getting somebody out. knew about it, right? Because he's not, and that's what happens, right? When you're not recruited out of high school, you go to a community college first, and you try to get in. How many big names have division. done that? Aaron Rodgers, right? Right, exactly. You know that's what happened with Aaron Rodgers. If you've heard of him, he's the quarterback for the Packers. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers, not recruited out of high school, highly, for some reason, goes to uh, community college, I think in Chico, California, and then two years later winds up going to Cal Berkeley, and obviously the rest is history. Right, first round pick after that. So this guy, for being such a well-known high school athlete, how he didn't get a Division One scholarship, I think is a red flag that people knew about something. It wasn't as quiet as what they thought it was. People who 
weren't necessarily being asked were the ones divulging this information because, you know, his coaches and stuff probably weren't to protect him. And, you know, and, and even a coach in high school, they want to be able to brag that one of their students. Oh, no doubt. They want to be able to brag that one of them made it big. So, you know, they weren't the ones necessarily telling him that. And that's not to incriminate those people. They got their own lives to protect, and they didn't make him do what he ends up doing. So I just want to make sure that everybody knows that when we talk about this. So he, he goes, like we said, to Treasure Valley Community College, and he's there for a year. And while he's there, he's arrested for breaking in and ransacking his ex-girlfriend's home. I think she lived with her parents at the time. He busts into their home, trashes it, and they know it's him, right? The parents and the girlfriend say, this is Randy. Randy did this, we know for a fact. But this is 19, what, 1971? Or so, nineteen seventy. So there's, you know, there's not surveillance cameras all over the place. Nobody has a ring doorbell, right? So there's no right. physical evidence connecting him to this. Right. And you know, if he's wearing gloves, there's no fingerprint evidence. So there's nothing they can do to to physically connect him to this. So it, he does go to trial. He does get arrested for it. They do press charges. He does go to trial, and he gets acquitted for it. All charges dropped. All charges dropped. With so they, no they didn't, evidence, as you said. There was no evidence that, that he did it. But again, the family swore up and down. He was actually found not guilty. That he did, right. He was acquitted for it. Yeah. Right. So after a year, even after this happened, after a year, he transfers to Portland State University. Again, not a big school. He's not transferring to Oregon. He's not transferring to Oregon State, Washington. Portland State University. Bigger. Bigger up in the chain, Right. right? And that was Oregon before it was Oregon now. So some of these other universities you mentioned weren't even that big at the time, but right. they're still bigger than Portland State. So he played wide receiver there for Portland State, the Portland State Vikings, and he played well. And he became a born-again Christian. I think that needs to be mentioned because he took religion very seriously from then on, but let's just say he didn't necessarily, well, he, we know he didn't act upon those those beliefs, but that was something that this guy was always trying to portray when anybody was asking him questions about who he was and how he did things. He always mentioned that first. So that's kind of something that will lead you to understand as to who he was and how he did things. Oh, he was part of he was he was part of some kind of Christian club or something right. or some Catholic club or, you know, some stuff that tried to portray that he was, you know, this man of God. All a facade because it's almost like he knew that something was coming. So he plays wide receiver at Portland State University, and he plays very well. And he's their leading receiver. And he plays well enough to become recognized by NFL scouts. Now, again, this is Portland State University, and you're playing well enough there to be recognized by NFL scouts. You're, you're, you're doing something. They're catching their attention. Right. So now SI wrote an article about this guy several years ago. I don't know what, exactly what year it came out. I think when this SI article came out, this is really what put this case on the map. And Rule, who we had mentioned in a in a, uh, a podcast prior to this about authors that we read, and Rule was one that I that I mentioned. And she wrote a book about Randall Woodfield called The I Five Killer. Came out in 1984, but even after that, it kind of didn't get the national kind of appeal that SI gave it. And when I think when this SI article came out which connected it to sports, right? It connects it to the NFL. It puts it in the pop culture sphere. It becomes huge in true crime circles. Well, sports so. Illustrated, especially back then, was a huge magazine sports-wide. 
So their article about him came out fairly recently, 2017-ish maybe, and that really put this case on the scene. And in that, um, his Woodfield's head coach at the time, a guy by the name of Ron Stratton, did an interview with SI and talked to SI about Randall Woodfield. And he said that scouts came to watch Randall and that he they interviewed him, the head coach, about Randall, and he told them about him. You know, he told him his straight line speed. He told him he's a good route runner, but he also told him that he didn't like to get hit, which, you know, playing-wise, on the field, that's a bit of a red flag. Especially for a receiver. Right. You don't like to go over the middle. Okay, so. Bit ironic, after all we've learned. Right. Well, they're not 19-year-old vulnerable women right, waiting for not, him there. You know? Well, he didn't want to be hit by anybody. He right. just wanted to do the hitting. So his coach, Stratton himself, was a former linebacker at Oregon. And so this stands out to him, right? You're, you're obviously a very talented wide receiver. You have to go over the middle. You have to get hit. It's just what they do. There's guys now in the NFL that kind of have a reputation of being soft and they don't like to get hit. Oh, you know, right. but they still take the hit. You know, they still do what they need to do. It sounds like this guy didn't like contact at all. And what Stratton said, he said, quote, it's a point of character. Woodfield doesn't have that, period. So that's how he worded it. He he talked him up. He's a great athlete. He's fast. He'll run the routes. Doesn't like getting hit. Doesn't like going over the middle. Now, former players remembered him. That's I interviewed a lot of his former players. But at, before you get in that, yeah. that, that coach, that statement is telling. He wasn't just talking about who he is on the field. I mean, he didn't want to go further into that and incriminate the guy or anything, but he... I, just from that statement alone, I got so much about how that guy felt about Randy Woodfield. No question about it. But as we'll get into later, too, I think he could have went further. Sure. And, and maybe he should have. Maybe he it wasn't his place. But the point is he was not talking about the player on the field only. Now, former players remembered Woodfield as being really odd. They said he didn't he didn't really have many friends on the football field. Standoffish kind of. He was kind of standoffish, quiet. He said, you know, one player said, quote, he didn't really fit in, unquote. And that he would make kind of, you know, weird off the wall comments all the time that would kind of uh, you know, take everybody aback. And and one weird thing is that they you know, a lot of them said that he was always kind of checking himself out. You know, he was always looking in Very the mirror. Vain. Yes, yeah. super vain. Because he was considered a good looking guy from even from his high school or his adolescent days, his teenage years. Um, so that was always something he had going for him. He he was always told how great he was, how much of an athlete he was, and how good-looking he was. So these are things that need to be remembered as far as how he looked at himself and how he valued himself. So one player said, quote, it seems like he was more interested in looking cute out there than getting mm-hmm. the job done. It seems like his, even though the NFL saw what he was doing on the field, you know, and they see him in games, and he's fast, and he's catching balls. His players know these little idiosyncrasies about him that are that they just just weirded him out. You know that he's, he's there's something strange. Again, he didn't have a lot of friends on the team, but he would hang out with like after practice, he would go hang out in the coaches' room with the coaches, and the coaches are like, "All right, dude, we're kind of heading out now. You know, practice is over and stuff." So. You know, just not your average kind of one of the guys on the team, right? Yeah, hanging out with the coaches instead, and they're even shooing him away at some point. Now, while at Portland State, he was arrested at least, and it's more than this. I don't know the exact number, but it's at least four that I can find 
four times for indecent exposure. But he was he, also arrested multiple times in those early 70s, very early 70s, for petty crimes like vandalism, petty thefts, and burglaries, much less the public indecency. So this is all when he's at Portland State. Right. So Not he, even a name yet, necessarily. He's, a, he's arrested many, many times. He's convicted twice of indecent exposure. He's still doing this shit, this stuff that he was doing when he was 11 years old. Now he's, what, 20? And he's doing 19, it 19, 20, and he's an still adult. doing it. It's obviously a compulsion for it's him. It's not cute, and you can't just shoo it away anymore because you're an adult male. Now, th- th- this is the thing about his, his coach, Stratton. Stratton didn't tell the scouts that, that he was arrested at all. And, it, you know, Stratton would come out in this SI article and say he didn't find out about these arrests and these convictions about indecent exposure until many years later. I don't know anything about Stratton, Ron Stratton. I know he was a linebacker at Oregon. I know he was the second African-American head coach at a university, not at an all-black school, which is something to be said, no doubt about it. It's still trailblazing. But the fact that you don't know your players are being arrested and convicted under your watch. Joe Pop. Excuse me. Bullshit. Yeah. Never happened. Like Joe Paterno. That's now he came. Think of. He he did not recruit Woodfield. He did come a year after he was here, but he spent still spent two years with him. He's still getting arrested while he's head coach. He's still getting convicted while he's head coach. And for him to not tell NFL scouts that now I know that you, again you're a head, you're a new head coach. You're the coach of a small school. What better PR could you get for your program than to have somebody get drafted into the NFL? Right. And what horrible disaster would it be if they found out one of your players was this horrific sexual predator type guy? Zero chance Ron Stratton did not know of these convictions. Well, and that's our speculation, but it seems like a pretty serious. Zero chance. Well, all right. I agree. We don't need to focus that much on that, though. But again, this is... This is how things are done even to this day. There's cover-up because you're... You you got a bigger agenda, of course. This there's a huge line. Now he's what is he? Twenty one years old here. Twenty years old, whatever he is. And there's a line of enabling here. Right. All of these things that he's doing. He thinks he's above everything. Of course. Right. He's an, he's, he's so he's becoming a narcissist. That's right? a huge he can do point. That all of these made. things wrong. Right. And, and nothing no nothing happens to him. Right. He's good looking and he's a good athlete. O.J. Simpson. Sorry, I keep throwing out these random names. But he does have this entitlement just raising around him. Now, he's the leading receiver on the football team. He knows the NFL is looking at him. So he drops out of school, and he enters the 1973 NFL draft. Actually, he, he, he entered the 1974 January NFL draft. January 30th, 1974. And lo, that be, early lo and behold, then. right, he's drafted in the 17th round, pick number 428, 428. by your Green, Green Bay, Packers. Bay Packers. Now today, this would never happen today, right? Well, there's no 17 rounds. The, no, I know. <laughs> oh, that draft today point. is only seven rounds, but to, the draft is such a huge spectacle. They're flying you in months ahead of time and and interviewing you. They're interviewing your family. They're interviewing your friends. They're interviewing your neighbor that you live next to is until that, you were five years old. Is that true of the guys even in the seventh round though? Necessarily. And especially the seventeenth round. They're doing then. background checks on everybody. Even the non, no doubt even about the it. non-drafted guys. I no suppose doubt that's true. About and it. back then, though, 
maybe they did that for a first couple of rounds. There's no way the 17th round guy was being researched like that. Sure. But again, if they did do a background check on him and they saw, maybe they saw a couple of those petty crimes in Oregon State or at, at, Portland State, but they didn't see this going all the way back until he was 11 years old because he had no record, right? Boys will be boys. Sure. Expunged. So the Packers draft him. Again, today the draft is, is it's TV spectacle. It's on for three days. Right. There's TV shows about it. There's magazines about it. There's it's a massive. Five hours of coverage before it. $100 million business, multiple $100 million business on just the draft today. Right. So these teams are paying these players millions of dollars. Never, they know everything about you when they draft you. Do they, you know, so do you have to have a squeaky queen, clean record? No, there can be some things out there, but they better be sure that that shit is over. And on those lines, as far as, as far as the contracts, he was offered a one-year contract to serve as what they called a skilled football player for $16,000 and with laden bonuses of $2,000 if he caught 25 passes that, that fall, and $3,000 if he caught 30 passes. I I don't make much less than that in a month, and I'm not exactly loaded. Well, this is a 1970s. Well, right, but I'm just... My, the point is, Bob Harlan, who is a name that people will be familiar sure. with now, at the time he was assistant GM who handled the team's contract that year, contracts that year, said, quote, when Bart Starr made 100000 Dollars, people thought he was overpaid. So that, that's just how different the time was back then as far as the NFL. The other thing about 1974 heading into this season is that it was actually a strike year in the NFL. So te- the players were actually striking. So in training camp, everything was rookie-laden. The, you know, there were much more rookies than normal in training camp. You, had, you still had your 17-round draft. And then there were all kinds of rookies brought in because from July until right before the season started that year, the vets were striking. So so he gets drafted. Uh, he gets his 16 grand, like Mickey said, and he, he's able to quit his job at uh, Portland Burger Chef, you know, which I'm sure he was happy about. But this was a big deal in his hometown. Oh, and, right? and this is what he, his dreams were coming true. And there, there was something else in his contract that also stipulated that he had to keep himself in peak condition, which is not something he had a, a problem with because he – as we've already discussed, was pretty vain. And he had to avoid consorting with gamblers and wear a coat and necktie in public. So that's these were contract terms back then. It was fairly simplified. but Some fairly. teams do that still. Like if you're a Yankee, you can't have facial hair. Oh, right. You know, they right. Still, some teams still do that. But, you know, again, he gets drafted. This is a big deal to his hometown. Local boy does good. The big high school athlete. Gets his dream. He gets drafted into the NFL. His dreams are coming true. So now, don't forget, he was a high school athlete. He didn't get he didn't get recruited to a big school. He went to a small junior college. He got to go up from that. He went to a small university, and he still got drafted in the NFL. So I don't think being drafted in the seventeenth round meant anything to him. I think he was just happy that he got in, and he's not thinking because he's a narcissist as well that he's not making this team. Right, I mean, and he, but he and he was signed almost immediately. So, I mean, again, that's another sign of things diff, being different than they are now. But he he thought this is the path I'm on, and it's going to go the way I'm I want it to go. So now in in April of that year, remember the draft is in January. The in now today we have OTAs, organized team activities, we have mini camps. Well, all the, that's done in Green Bay, and the draft isn't even until April. Right, now. the draft is later. Um, but they don't they didn't have any of that stuff then. 
So basically, Dan Devine, who was right. the head coach and GM at that time. Another first in Wisconsin, by the way. Set up these mini camps in Arizona, basically for the rookies to go out there, to hang out with each other, to get acclimated, probably to learn the playbook, you know, to get ahead up on training camp. And it was in Arizona, so to correct myself, but again, another first that originated in Wisconsin, this was a Packer football coach that started these mini camps that didn't exist up until then. I didn't know that until we did this research. That's pretty amazing too. So they do this mini camp in, in, in Arizona in the spring. And then he goes back to Portland until he comes to Green Bay for training camp in July. Now, the media guide says the following about Randall Woodfield, quote, timed at 4.7 in the 40, which is not that fast today, by the way. If you're a wide receiver. They're so much bigger and faster and stronger. Wide receivers today, you're 4-3, 4-4. Some linemen run that fast now. It's crazy. So that is kind of surprising to me, 4.7. That's still fast. But, you know, we're talking NFL athletes. That won't cut it today. So timed at 4.7 in the 40, cuts on a dime, has good hands and catches well in a crowd, fluid and smooth, hustles, good jumper. So as it was, he... He goes through training camp with the Packers. Seems like he's doing well. He's playing in preseason games against the Bears at Lambeau, right? According to letters he sent back home, he's excited. He's he's damn sure he's making this team. But on one of the last cutdowns before the season starts, he was cut. Well, in June, the team sent him a first-class plane ticket with instructions for airport limo pickup and all that for him to be picked up and taken to training camp in De Pere. He opted to drive from Oregon instead, which seems like a strange option for a guy who wants to be in the limelight. But then, then as Scott mentioned, it never came to fruition. Is is that so? Let's talk about that for a second, because in a lot of the research you read, people think that that's weird that the Packers send them airplane tickets to come here, and he declines that and he drives here. And Ann Rule makes a big deal about that in her book too, and they say, "Well, that's kind of weird. You know, he wants his car there because he's going to be prowling." Really? I mean, he, he I don't even think of that he, part. He thinks he's he thinks he's going to be staying there. He thinks he's making the team, right? So, so he he's like, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to fly there. I'm going to drive there. Right. And it you know, it's a long ways obviously, Portland sure. to Green Bay, but I don't, that doesn't come off as odd to me at all. Right. And I didn't I didn't really think of even that the part about needing a vehicle to to do what he's going to do, but right. I just I thought it was a little weird, but then I think he's a small town boy. He's a small town guy. I think guys still do that to this day. They what they get their own way. They they have their own friends or family take them there, no matter what the option is that they've given. They just want to be comfortable until that last second. Well, today they they fly here and then they go and buy the car, you well, know, because they 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 get massive deals right away. They, right. You know. Well, and that's in college now because there's no such thing as amateur status. Right. That's a whole other subject that we're not going to cover. But my point is. Even guys, especially later round guys, they, they're nervous. They're still human beings. They're still going to be nervous. And I think guys even give up that to, the, to this day. They want their friends or family to be dropping them off. I think I've heard that it's those options for the limo and the plane get passed off at least to the stadium. They, they want to be with the people they love and, and trust the most up until that last second. So I think it still happens. So I agree with you. It's not that weird. Yeah, I, I don't um, – I thought it was odd that a lot of the research that Mickey Especially and I have done back then. Have, have kind of made a deal. That I, you know, and I think this is, this is, it's in hindsight, though. 
you know, they know what he was doing. Right. They know now what he was looking at. And, and they're some like, of well, these people, he, he wanted a car for bad reasons. And I, s- I don't know. And some of these people that are speculating aren't necessarily keen on how on the NFL life and all that stuff, sure. too. A lot of these people aren't necessarily sports sure. fans. Right. So he gets, right before the season, he gets cut. He winds up not making the team. Now, there's discrepancies around why. Okay, Woodfield himself says that he was cut because the Packers were a run-heavy team, which is true. There's not That's not untrue, right? Dan Devine was a run-heavy coach, and there is truth to that. But, you right. know, people like Ann Rule again, she alludes to rumors that have come about that the Packers cut him because of a litany of off-field issues. Again, alluding to the fact that he was exposing himself all over the place in Green Bay. But they did not give an official reason. No, the Packers have never commented on this. They've they never still, given an official reason, and why would they? Right. Right, he's a 17th round draft pick. Right, especially you know? back then. And and to this day, like in 2006, he put on his MySpace page what Scott said. That those are the reasons he was not drafted or not kept by the team. So to this day, he still feels that way. Right. After all that's happened, as you'll find out. So, you know, and, and again, people make a big deal about the Packers not giving an official reason of why he was cut. They they, they never do. I mean, their, their teams... They really don't. Their preseason teams are nine... Today, they're, you know, 92 players. And in three weeks, they have to cut that down to 53. They don't give an official reason of why all 40 guys are cut. They don't always... They're just not making the team. Right. They don't necessarily even know all the reasons, probably. It's just, okay, this guy just seems better. They don't... They're not going to take the time to come up with a list of reasons. So we don't know if he was cut because he just didn't cut it. You know, when you get this guy, even though he was so good at small Portland State, you know, when you get him up against other prospective NFL talent did he not just cut it the best athletes in the world was he just not very good you know it wasn't the best guy to have on the team or did they know something we don't know well and like you say that doesn't mean he wasn't still a gifted athlete but you're going up against other athletes of the same caliber so sure i mean you have to stand out and if he didn't and and you have some other things that are red flags especially back then again things were a little different and and they weren't the superstars they are now, and they weren't given the chances that they're given now either. I certainly don't believe that the Packers ever told him that that was the reason why he was cut, sure, you know, because right. he stayed here, right? Right. He gets cut from the Packers, and he moves to Oshkosh. He was devastated. No, no doubt about angry it. Angry and depressed. Playing, NFL was his dream, no and, doubt. And he promptly dropped out of college at that point and just, you know, kind of had this... Well, he's either going to dedicate himself to this or just give up. So he moves to Oshkosh, and he's, he gets a job with Oshkosh Truck. And he starts playing for a semi-pro team in Manitowoc called the Manitowoc Chiefs, which is, a, uh, again, a semi-pro team in the Central State Football League. So he would practice with them twice a week. They'd have their games, I believe, on Saturday afternoons. It's, the, the league is now defunct, right? They had teams in... Uh, what, Lake Forest, Illinois, Rockford, Illinois, West Dallas, Sheboygan, Manitowoc, Delavan, Racine, and Madison. It was disbanded two years later, which that was 1974. So in 1976, the league was disbanded. So he was playing for the Manitowoc Chiefs, hoping that the Packers would see him, right? That he would have, would have a good year. and uh, Or if somebody gets hurt, you know, kind of like a lot what happens in baseball, kind of like a minor league team, right? Oh, we get, we get somebody hurt, we're going to call you up. 
right? We need a wide receiver. You're in Manitowoc. You were in training camp with us. We're going to call you up. You're going to play with us. And that would give him another opportunity to make the team. That was his thinking at the time. Yeah, he thought, I'm right? still going to stand Which out. made and perfect sense. For the record, Manitowoc is also a setting for another fairly famous. No doubt. Manitowoc has um, had its fair share of notoriety with uh, true crime in the Not last so decent human decade beings. ago with, uh, with the Stephen Avery. Um, 2015 case. Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer. So the Chiefs go on. And uh, they go to the championship game that year. They're a pretty good team in that league. They go to the championship. Uh, they lost the championship game to the Madison Mustangs, 14 to nothing. But Randall Woodfield was a big part of the offense throughout the year. In that championship game, he caught four passes for 42 yards. He's, I don't know if he was their leading receiver, but he was a big part. He was one of their main dudes on offense, right? Catching a lot of balls. He's one of their main playmakers on offense. Central States Football League. But after that season, 1974, he gets let go again. No reason given. And again, later on, all kinds of rumors about why. You know, and, and there, although there's no records anywhere indicating that any arrests of Woodfield were ever made. So right. To no, this point. There's nothing on any record anywhere in the state that says Randall Woodfield was ever arrested during his time in Wisconsin. However, there was an interview with a former Wisconsin law enforcement officer at the time, a fairly recent interview. He was an officer at the time, and he said that Woodfield was, quote, involved in, unquote, whatever that means. Woodfield was involved in at least 10 incidents of indecent exposure across the state. He's still doing this shit, man. Right. And just to paint more of a picture, as we maybe alluded to but didn't necessarily get into, even teammates of this Manitowoc Chiefs team would refer to him as a smooth operator when it came to the ladies. He was a ladies' man, but also a bit strange, like he didn't necessarily know how to act towards towards the dudes. Well, one teammate, Fred O'Claire, recalled him bragging about stealing a not-for-sale trinket from a local Christian bookstore and always being on the phone and saying, he had women in every port, it seemed. Like, he was always bragging about how popular he was with the ladies and he, just bragging about these odd things like, oh, yeah, I stole this trinket from a bookstore. They just never could put their finger on who he was or why he was doing the things he would do. So was football really priority for him? Right. Or was he kind of using it as a tool? And maybe not even realizing ladies, it. Right. You know? So, again, there was this officer that said that he was involved in at least 10 incidents of indecent exposure across the state and that he, quote, couldn't keep the thing in his pants, unquote. <laughs> so here he is again. This is 1974. He's now 24 years old. He's still doing this shit in a different state. So now football is over for Randy. He gets cut by the Packers. He gets cut by the Manitowoc Chiefs. You get cut by a semi-pro team. You're done, man. Well, that's, that's how he was deeply hurt. Right. And seemingly figured his career was over. He's devastated, and he goes back to Oregon, and all hell was about to break loose. The rampage would begin. So back in Portland, Woodfield starts to drift a little bit. I don't know if he's depressed. Obviously, he's still feeling kind of defeated from getting cut from the NFL and then a semi-pro team. This is early 1975 now. 
but he couldn't he couldn't keep a job he couldn't keep an apartment he was less than a semester away from graduating from college and he he refused to go back he didn't want to do it yeah he didn't want to go back and finish he just kind of was drifting along right he wasn't really doing anything with any purpose but he was still a schmoozer right he's still he's still tw- he's 24 years old he's still athletic he's still good looking he's still obviously you know, has a way with the ladies, which he's kind of famous for, I guess, in his circles. So then in 1975, as Mickey stated, the city of Portland starts dealing with kind of a rash of robberies and, and sexual assaults in a park, Dunaway Park, located in southwest Portland, where numerous times a man armed with a knife would attack women late at night. Um, As they described him, athletically built and handsome. Sexually assault them, uh, rob them, and run off. And all of the descriptions of these women, all of the descriptions of the assailant were the same, as Mickey said. Handsome, athletic, six feet-ish tall. So it sounds like the same person every time, right? And he'd, as you put it, he would demand oral sex and then he'd take their purse or wallet, which is not just a pickpocket at that point. So... It, it gets to the point, There's a, this is happening quite a bit, so the police set up a sting. And on March 5th of that year, a female undercover officer, a very brave one at that, I might add. Right. I mean, you never know what's going to happen in these, no, in these she things. She must have some idea what could, you know, doing her job. So they set her up, and she goes walking through the park late at night. And sure enough, a guy jumps out from some bushes and, and brandishes a paring knife. And, odd. and demands money from her. And obviously police officers were stationed close by and they, you know, jump in and they they catch the guy right away. And the guy identifies himself as one Randall Brandt Woodfield. Now, after admitting these attacks, he gets sentenced to 10 years in prison, right, for all of these things that he did. And he did admit to this. And f- during the interview... Again, he claimed that he didn't drink, he doesn't smoke, and he was committed to his Christian faith. It was always that I'm a good guy motif that he was trying to portray. So he does give interviews, as Mickey said. All these guys, you know, these narcissists want you to know why they're doing things, right? They want to talk and they want to be known. So he does, like, you know, I am I'm committed to my Christian faith. I don't drink, I don't smoke. He also did admit to having, quote, sexual issues, and that he was not able to control his impulses on this. And he blamed this, interestingly enough, on steroids. Right? He admitted to taking steroids while he was playing football to stay in shape, to stay obviously augment his, his physique, to stay big. And he said that maybe that impacted his behavior. Maybe that's why he's taking steroids. Maybe that's why, you know, these impulses are too strong for him that he couldn't Stop doing this. And as far as the the police themselves, Lieutenant Paul Weatherroy, a longtime Portland cold case detective, he actually said, quote, there was conventional wisdom back in the day that someone who was an exposer or a peeping Tom wouldn't elevate to more serious crimes. We've learned that nothing's further from the truth, unquote. So back then it was just, uh, he's just a pervert. He's just a sicko. It wasn't going to lead to anything more. That's, that's how they thought. Yeah, I don't know that I believe that. 
That, I mean, that, that's what he said. Well, I that's, that. I mean, but, I, I, it was backed up by the fact that they didn't necessarily follow these guys more back then. Though. We're talking about the 1970s here. We're not, I mean, this isn't Civil War time. No. You know? And f- they're just coming out of the free love time, too, for one thing, so. So, but he says, you know, he's taking steroids, and this is why his his sexual impulses are to the point where he can't control them. But he was doing this shit in middle school, man. He, you're, not, you're not taking steroids in middle school. Right. So this is and more. He had the anger and the sexual. This baby. is more excuses for him. Right. Right. Well, maybe that's what he's trying to tell other people, or maybe that's what he's trying to tell himself. Well, it's more lies, you know, to to you know why he needs his Christian faith to cover that bullshit. Right. Up. And I I understand that, but possibly this is him trying to rationalize his own existence too. You know, who knows what's going on through the head of a psychopath like that? So he does get sentenced to ten years in prison for these uh, attacks at Dunaway Park. Charged in, with robbery. But in 19... Right. It, it was everything, all these all these sexual acts... Disregarded. Thrown away. Kind of like I alluded to. Yeah, yep. I, I don't know that they felt that way or they just didn't act on it or what, but apparently that was just, you know, perversion, whatever. That's men being men. So the, the violent nature of the attacks was thrown out and he was basically put in prison for 10 years for robbery. You're putting in, you're, you put in prison for 10 years for robbery. You're not serving 10 years. And guess what? He didn't serve 10 years. Nope. 1979 after good behavior and, uh, apparently a, a, a nice interview with uh, the correction psychologist. He gets out after four years. Here we go again. Right, little consequences for what he's done. It's just the line of this stuff just keeps continuing he's his whole life. Gets away with it. His whole gets life. away with everything. I'm above the law. He's emboldened by it. His narcissistic personality keeps getting broader and bigger. And his sense of entitlement, like I can do anything and I'm fine. So now, after he gets out of of prison, he seems to be reinvigorated a little bit. Right, his social life. Seems to be reinvigorated a little bit. His friends, the friends that he had, threw him a party after he got out of jail, kind of like a, a release party. He attended his 10-year high school reunion where he was the center of attention, right? Telling all his stories of playing for the Green Bay Packers, right? So here, at this high school reunion, he also connected with a girl named Sherry Ayers, who was an attractive 29-year-old and a former classmate of his from high school, obviously, and the two started up some kind of a relationship. I don't think it's clear what kind of a relationship that was, if they were dating or if he wanted to date her. We don't really know exactly what kind of relationship they had, but they did communicate. former classmates. Former classmates. They did communicate quite a bit after this party. Now, S.I., in the article that we alluded to before, wrote about this time after he was released from prison, and they talk about it this way. Quote, out of prison, he cut a contradictory figure. For all of his failures, let go from bartending gigs, jettisoned by girlfriends, they hardly seemed to come at the expense of self-confidence. He cruised around Portland in a gold 1974 champagne edition Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah! And took unmistakable pride in his physique. He was especially fond of sending naked photos of himself to women. In late 1979, Woodfield was photographed in a state of undress, his abundant muscles abundantly oiled. This is called coming from SI, man. Those are the notes I put on my paper because I wanted to read it that way myself. <laughs> he, he mailed the image to Playgirl for consideration. 
And the following May, he received a letter back from Playgirl that said, quote, Congratulations, you've been selected for possible publication in Playgirl's Guy Next Door feature. Like we all haven't wanted to be that. So obviously, everybody loves me, right? Look right. at me. I tried out once for the Green Bay Packers. Chicks dig me. Even when I'm a pervert, I get away with it. Right. And now the women want to see me in their magazine. Playgirl loves me, and I'm going to be in Playgirl. Well, that photo shoot never seemed to come. We kept waiting for it. Never seemed to come. Playgirl wasn't contacting him again. And that's when police believe his actions really started to escalate. <laughs> so in October of 1980, Sherry Ayers, the girl who he had reconnected with at the high school, Reunion was found dead in her Portland apartment, raped, stabbed, and bludgeoned to death. Cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head and stabbed repeatedly in the neck. Now, based on being a recently released sex offender, Woodfield was immediately a suspect here. And that was kind of only strengthened when they found out about their rekindled friendship, right? So they're on to Woodfield as being kind of, you know, at least a person of interest. They also found a stash of letters that Randy had been sending her since the time that reconnected. Right, so he's sent, they live in the same city, and he's sending her letters through the mail. So this is kind of what makes me believe that this was a relationship that he wanted that maybe she did not. I don't know that for a fact. So Woodfield is brought into questioning, and he's actually found to be very deceptive to the police. They're on to him. You know, he's, he's trying to put on the charm, and they don't believe him. They believe still that he is their main suspect here, but they can't pin him down with anything. Again, there's no physical evidence. This is 1980, 1979, 80, October of 1980. There's no DNA yet, right? right? They did find seminal fluid in her, but it was not a match for him. And DNA, the, the DNA idea was there. They hadn't come anywhere near perfecting it, as we alluded to in our Walter Yellis right. episode. Right, DNA you know, started to be really utilized in these cases like this in about 1986 or 1987. Right, but they, they were aware that it was a thing they should sure. start using. They just hadn't come anywhere near perfect. Sure, they couldn't use DNA evidence yet, but they did have seminal fluid inside of the victim, and it did not match his. So obviously she's been having relations with other people. So is, is that what he found out? Is that what, you know, if he indeed did this, right, is that what threw him off here and... He went into a rage and did this to her. But again, no physical evidence connecting him to this crime. They do have him connected to the victim, but they have no physical evidence connecting him to the murder. So away he went from that. About a month and a half later, 22-year-old Darcy Renee Fix and her friend, 24-year-old Doug Altig, were found shot to death, execution style in her home. Again, Woodfield was found to have a connection to the victims, as Darcy Fix was a former girlfriend of one of Woodfield's best friends, somebody that he ran track with at Portland State. So again, they have a connection with Woodfield to the victim, but they don't have any physical evidence at the scene connecting Woodfield to the murders. So away he goes from that. And then after this, there's a string of robberies and sexual assaults at various places of business in the next few months as convenience stores and ice cream parlors and gas stations were repeatedly held up, all with young female staff who were held up at gunpoint, 
sexually assaulted, and then the assailant ran off. Eventually, they found out that a lot of these, this robbery spree, these holding up of gas stations that was going on along the Interstate 5 highway. A highway that starts at the border with Mexico, and, and it runs 1,381 miles north through the states of California, Oregon, and Washington to the Canadian border in Blaine, Washington. So it's a long stretch, and there's lots of different places in many, many days, all very close to each other. December 9th, a young gunman wearing a fake beard held up a gas station in Vancouver, and they're starting to realize at this point some of his tells. He's wearing fake a fake beard, and he liked to use athletic tape and put it over his nose. They're starting to see... These are things that are starting to become evident later on that he's showing every time. December 9th, a young gunman wearing the fake beard has held up a gas station in Vancouver. December 13th, the same man wearing a fake beard and athletic tape over his nose raided an ice cream parlor in Eugene, Oregon. December 14th, same man robbed a drive-in restaurant in Albany, Oregon. December 21st, a gunman trapped a 25-year-old waitress in a restroom. A restroom... (laughs) of a chicken restaurant in Seattle, Washington, forcing her to masturbate him. 20 minutes later, he robbed another ice cream parlor, escaping with cash in hand, and by now he's starting to be called the I-5 Bandit, as we alluded to earlier. January 8th, 1981, the bandit raided some Vancouver, Washington gas station a second time, the same one he'd already been at, forcing a female attendant to show her breasts while emptying the cash register. January 11th, A gunman robbed a market in Eugene, Oregon. January 12th, same man wounded a female grocery clerk, age 20, with a gunfire in Sutherland, Oregon. January 14th, once again wearing a fake beard, invaded a home in Corvallis, Oregon, occupied by two children aged 8 and 10, forced them to disrobe, and sexually assaulted them and forced the 10-year-old to perform fellatio. So he goes on this massive crime spree of robbing Sexually assaulting. Sexually assaulting and and, and raping. Well, so the crimes escalated. They started with him, you know, holding these places up, and then he would force the women in a back room, and he would disrobe, and he would kind of, you know, take care of himself. And then it escalated to forcing them to disrobe, and then he would make them do acts on him. And then it escalated to him raping and sodomizing. And there was somewhat of a similar demographic, but... There was women of all ages. I mean, maybe not necessarily older than 40, but as I mentioned, there's children even involved at times, so he targeted anything female. So then on the evening of January 18th, 1981, so all this started in October, for the most part. He did some robberies and was holding up places in 79, right. I do know. He started on this stuff, but it wasn't But nearly... for the most for the most part, this, this hard stuff started in October 80, 1980. And so now we're in January of 1981. So this has all been going on for only three months. Right, and, and he started hurting people before right. it was the petty theft, which none of it's good, but it starts escalating as we're taking. So then on so. January 18th, 1981, two 20-year-old women, Sherry Hull and Lisa Garcia, were nearing the end of their shift cleaning an office building in Kaiser, Oregon. It's a Sunday night. Right, nobody's there but these two young women cleaning the building. Every business has this, right? Cleaning crew that comes in at night. Somehow somebody gets in the building, grabs Sherry Hull by the arm, and sticks a gun in her face. He takes her down the hall, and he sees another cleaner there, which is Lisa Garcia, the other 20-year-old. So now he has two women by gunpoint. 
in this empty office building. Transamerica office building. He takes them both into a back room, rapes them both, and then while they're both lying naked, face down on the floor, he shoots them both in the head twice. Execution style, obviously. Right. So a few weeks later, just a few weeks later, on February 3rd, 1981, Donna Eckerd, 37 years old, and her 14-year-old daughter, Janelle Jarvis, are found dead in their home in Northern California. Again, just off I-5, all of these crimes, all of them, the murders, the holdups. Blocks off of, like, not even blocks off of I-5. They're all within a two-mile, they're all within two miles of an The of first an exit you're going to find, right. Right, right. off of I-5. They, may, they, they actually they make a map, and all of these are right off of I-5. So Donna Eckerd, 37, and her 14-year-old daughter, Janelle Jarvis, are found dead in their home. Both shot multiple times in the back of the head. Hand t- hands tied behind their backs with athletic tape. Tests later showed that the teen had been sodomized. Now, on the same day, a waitress was kidnapped and raped 15 miles south of this house. Now, because there was athletic tape used to bound the hands of the mom and the daughter, they have now connected all of these crimes to the, quote, I-5 bandit. Because in all these quick holdups that he did, where he raped and sodomized these women and then took off, he didn't kill them. He left witnesses in all these places. So they were all able to make a description of the assailant. And he's it leaving, was all the same. He's leaving tracks everywhere. Right. Much less DNA. Six feet tall, brown curly hair, handsome, athletic build, usually wearing some kind of a hoodie with the hood over his head, and athletic tape on his nose. And sometimes the fake beard. And sometimes an obviously fake beard. Right. So this is all the same person. So now they're on to Woodfield. They know he is the killer as well. There wasn't necessarily a connection between the earlier murders and the the antics of of the person that they called the I-5 bandit. But now because athletic tape was used in these murders, now they've connected it all to the same dude and because not only because of the athletic tape that was used but also because of something that Woodfield didn't know is that one of the 20 year old cleaners in the office building Lisa Garcia survived she not only survived she never lost consciousness she feigned death she faked being dead after being raped and shot in the head twice she still had the wherewithal to just fake it and survival techniques. Waited, she, so she it's waits crazy. until he leaves. She fakes being dead, waits until he leaves, immediately gets to a phone and calls police and then has the wherewithal to give them a description of this guy. Talk about having your wits about you in the most traumatic situation you've ever been involved in, especially at the age of 20. 20 years old. I hope... I hope this is the worst thing that happened to her at that point. And again, that her description of the assailant is the same thing that matches all of these. Six feet tall, handsome, hoodie, fake beard, athletic. But to be able to give that description after what just happened to you, things that right. these things will never leave her, and she was able to give the same description that they've already gotten. Wow, that's an amazing woman. So now the I-5 bandit is no more. Now he's the I-5 killer. 
So now the police have to find him before he kills again, right? They know it's Woodfield. They have to find him before he kills again, but they weren't quite fast enough. February 4th, identical crime reported. Eureka, California, bandit robbed motel later that night in Ashland, California. February 9th, bandit held up fabric store, molesting clerk and her customer before leaving in Corvallis, Oregon. February 12th, robberies in Vancouver, Washington, Olympia, Washington, and Bellevue, Washington. The last two stops included three more sexual assaults. February 14th, Valentine's Day. So on that night, February 14th, he seems to have a date with somebody named Julie Reitz. She um, is found dead in her home later the next morning by her mother. Same M.O., right? Raped, executed, shot twice in the back of the head. In Beaverton, Oregon. She was 18 years old. 18. Now, again, Woodfield becomes a top suspect here as they were connected. He used to work at a bar, which she would come to, and because she was underage, he would let her in. Now, there seems to be some kind of a relationship with them, too. There was wine, two glasses of wine out when her body was found, so it seems like they were together. Dating. I, I read that they were possibly dating. So Woodfield eventually is arrested as at his apartment. He doesn't leave town. He doesn't skip away, right? None of these narcissists ever do. They just don't believe they're ever going to be caught. Search warrants were eventually given. They had issues getting search warrants because even though they knew this is their guy, they didn't still, which we saw early on, they didn't have physical evidence of him committing the crimes. But but the, by February 28th, and this is like, as you alluded to, this is all happening really quick. They'd started to put together a payphone call log. So they didn't have physical evidence, but they're starting to piece together things that they can use in trial. So they get they they do eventually get a search warrant. They had to fight like hell to get it, but they got it. And they get into his house and they find things like athletic tape, the same kind of athletic tape that's being used in all of these murders. And they also find phone records, as Mickey just alluded to made from a calling card from phone booths in the area where these crimes were being committed. This is what ultimately did him in. So Beaverton Police Chief David Bishop said of the killer's pattern, quote, all of a sudden it became obvious. It was a map of I-5. Woodfield was addicted to the phone. He made thousands of calls. He had girlfriends everywhere. So he's committing these crimes, doing these things to these women, and then calling his girlfriend, whoever that may be, in whatever area he's in. This is a sick dude here. So he's ID'd by several eyewitnesses because he left so many eyewitnesses, the ones that he didn't kill. He's ID'd in police lineups by several eyewitnesses, including by Lisa Garcia, who he thought he had killed. So now by March 1981, his crime spree is over. Eight months after he started murdering people that we know of. The crime spree is over. It's one of the most prolific in American history. Taken into custody on March 7th. Now, the Packers, they didn't fare too well either either that season in 1974. They finished at 6-8. and eight. Dan Devine resigned as head coach and GM. He, be, he goes on to become head coach at Notre Dame, does fine, wins a national title there in 1977. Everybody's heard of Dan Devine. If you've if you've seen the movie Rudy, he's the head coach. Right. In that, I mean, obviously he's being portrayed by an actor, but he's 
Dan Devine is the head coach at Notre Dame at that time, and he, word is that Dan Devine hated the portrayal of him in that movie because it makes him look like an asshole. Right. And he said a lot of things in that movie didn't happen that way. But. And he did invent the minicamp, if nothing else. I mean, that's a pretty big thing to hang your head on. So now after this, Bart Starr becomes head coach, and, and what Mickey said before, this oh. ushered in just an era of long losing football. That Never lasted, thought we'd see a playoff team when we were growing up. Lasted all the way into the 1990s. I mean, it was it was not good. Now, the interesting, police say that Woodfield kept every single correspondence he ever had with the Packers. It's all in a police locker now in Portland. Every envelope he ever got with that Packer G on it, he kept. And he, he even kept what Mickey had alluded to before, the plane tickets that the Packers sent him, and he declined and drove his car out there. He kept those in his wallet. They were souvenirs. That's why maybe he didn't want to use them. But he's still holding on to this. Right. He's still got them. Right? I mean, this was his lot in life. I tried out for the Green Bay Packers. That was his gig. Right? So even six years later, that was his purpose in life. Mm-hmm was playing football or at least being able to talk about playing football. He made the team technically, so yeah. He was an NFL player for a couple of months. Now, Bill Tobin, who was the Packers, and again, NFL guys know who this is, Bill Tobin, who was the Packers director of player scouting in 74, still today says he doesn't even remember Randall Woodfield and had no idea that one of his players wound up, you know, one of the players that he that he scouted and drafted went on to be a serial killer yet. So as cynical as, as we, we both can be, do you really believe he doesn't know that this guy? Not a chance. You don't believe it? Not a chance. Right. I, I know damn I I believe wholeheartedly that he knows this guy was a serial killer, but what good does admitting to it do him? Right. It's not, what did he do? Right. Like he had drafted a serial it. killer. Or I mean, he trained him how to be yeah, one, maybe. Yeah, right. Here's well, a paring knife. This is how you use it. Right. But, you know, Portland detectives still today maintain that the Packers cut Woodfield in part because of his off-field concerns. Jim Lawrence, who is part of Portland's cold case department, um, says still today, quote, I know that was a factor that he was caught exposing himself, unquote. So the police do believe that the Packers did cut him because of what was going on off the field. So now he's still in prison. He's still alive. I think he's 72 years old or something. He actually looks good. He can tell he's an athlete. Well, he's been right? vain for his whole sure. life, so he's yeah. going to keep himself in he's still, especially he's, in prison. He still talks football with the guards at the Oregon State Penitentiary. He still talks about his time with the Packers. Again, this was this was his purpose in life. According, This is all he cares about. And as we said before, he joined MySpace in the, in uh, 2006. You remember MySpace, Mickey? That was, One of the first. Hell yeah. The so first, I think. He he posted in a profile, and this is kind of as close as he's ever come to taking ownership of his past at all. And uh, he said, quote, I spend the remainder of my days in prison because I have committed a murder along with many other crimes. I once tried out for the Green Bay Packers. The only reason I didn't make it is because the skills I had to offer they didn't need at the time were 50-some years later. And he's still saying, well, they didn't really need receivers. So he just kind of glosses over the, yeah, I've done some things wrong. But the Packers didn't keep me because they had a different 
regime going on. Well, they say, you know... My I, skills weren't needed for them. They say I'm one of the most notorious serial killers ever, but I tried out for the Green Bay Packers And they once. would have wanted me had they had a passing game that was for real. I mean, they, these narcissists, they, they just... I mean, you can smell them a mile away. Right. This I've, is I've utterly worked with ridiculous. A few. He has still never confessed to anything in his life right. other than those um, those attacks at, at the park, you know, when he first moved back to Portland, right. when he went to prison and got out for, you know, robbery. And a lot of these guys, and, and we'll get into the actual conviction and all that, but a lot of these guys do break down at some point when they kind of see the light coming, like their time is up. Maybe they just want to get it off their shoulders or maybe they want to brag, whatever the reason. He still to this day holds that he did not do any of this stuff except for what Scott alluded to. Now his trial for Sherry Hull, his trial for the murder of Sherry Hull and the attempted murder of Lisa Garcia that began. That was at the Transamerica office building. Those are the two 20-year-old cleaners, right? right? That began in June 1981, which was also the first murder trial for Marion County, Oregon prosecutor Chris Van Dyke, who's the son of the very famous Dick, Dick Van Dyke, right? Right, that's crazy. I read that and I went, well, that's a weird tie-in from out of nowhere. So Lisa Garcia testified at the trial. She pointed out Woodfield as her attacker, and justice uh, was pretty swift here. You know, it took just three and a half hours for the jury to convict him. It was him. quick. There's no death penalty in Oregon, so he got life plus 90 years. And later that year, he got another 35 tacked on for one of the uh, robberies and sexual assaults he committed. But to this day... Technically, he was charged with murder of Sherry Hull, attempted murder of Lisa Garcia, and two counts of sodomy by the courts, and convicted of all the counts. And as you said... Conviction of sodomy and weapons charger, charges in Benton County, Oregon, added 35 more years to his sentence, which was prison term of life plus 90 years. Now, to this day, the conviction of his murder of Sherry Hall is still the only conviction he's ever got. Of murder. Now, SI puts it this way. Sports Illustrated says about that, what happened next. They write the following. District attorneys up and down the I-5 corridor had a decision to make. Even if they could secure a conviction, what would be the point? Woodfield was already almost certainly going to die in prison. Additional trials would drain their offices of time and resources and would put the victim's families through an excruciating ordeal. Even in California, where Woodfield was accused of killing a mother and her daughter and where the death penalty would have been an option, the local prosecutor eventually decided against pursuing Woodfield. I don't know how I feel about that. Oh, I think you do. So they're saying that because we got a conviction of Randall Woodfield killing Sherry Hull, and he got life plus 90 years, plus 35 years for this other robbery that he committed. He's never. It wasn't just murder, but right. So they're saying he's never getting out of prison. We're not going to try him for all these other murders. Because they didn't, they didn't have the money to follow through, as they put it. Do you, you know how much money states use taxpayer levy for right. for the shit and garbage that they throw away mindlessly every day? Things that don't affect our lives whatsoever. And, and this guy's going to sit here and say, we don't have the money to prosecute. Put this in perspective. Randall Woodfield is convicted of one murder. He is the main suspect, meaning they almost can prove that he killed 18 people. At least. They, they can prove 18. And he is the main suspect. 
for up to 44 murders. And 44. That, including upwards of 60, 60, 60 sexual assaults. You're just talking murder. How about the nasty things that make people who never die or who don't die, how, they, how the impression he has on them? So these district attorneys had a decision to make, according to SI. Even if they could secure a conviction, what would be the point? What would be the point? How about closure for the families who have a dead daughter? The victims. Who have a dead sister? A dead wife. You don't have the money? What's the point? Right. What a horrible way to say that. And even if that's the truth, these families, if you're one of those people affected, you don't just say, oh, you find the money for everything else. You don't find the money for this. I mean, yeah, it's beyond ridiculous. Convicted of one, pretty sure he did 18 could have done upwards of 44. Okay. What if he didn't? What if he didn't? He's never confessed to anything in his life. He's never confessed to any murder. Even the murder he was convicted of, never confessed to it. We're going to sit here and believe he killed 44 people in eight months? Well, judging by the timeline we were going by, it's somewhat believable, but until it's proven, you you can't 100% believe it. Now, since advancements in DNA, he has they have used DNA to prove that he killed five others. Darcy Fix, Doug Altig, Donna Eckerd, her daughter Janelle Jarvis, and Julie Reeds. So by DNA evidence, they have proven that he killed them. I, I, you know, I guess a part of me, if the, if the family's okay with that, can be okay with they're not going to put that through court because they know for a fact that he is the murderer of them. But there's actually... A few other names, like Sylvia Durante, age 21, in 79, Marsha Wieder, age 19, Kathy Allen, age 18, in 1980. They actually have names of people that were killed in the same way, in the same jurisdiction, along the same highway that they speculate. But again, other than DNA evidence, they're, you're never going to find out for sure in, their, in either other families. There's 38 names, 38 other names, 38 other people have lost family members that they're basically saying, eh, you know, Randall Woodfield probably did this. And, that, and that's what they're supposed to go on, right? That's what they're supposed to live with. And that's just the murders. What that's about the, the sexual murders. assaults and the rapes and the sodomy and all that? I mean, those people, th- those women are living with that for the rest of their lives, so... Their families are dealing with that too. Yeah, they have come out and said because of these, because of these other five murders where he was connected by DNA, that if it, if it somehow would ever come to that he would get a parole hearing, which I can't even believe that's being spoken about. Right. But but if he would ever get a parole a parole hearing, that they would just bring forth these indictments, so he would never get out anyways. That's not the point. That's not the question here. Randall Woodfield is going to die in prison. We understand that, you know, but we're supposed to be told, you know, to remember the victims here. There's 38 other families here that don't have closure for their loved one. They're just supposed, they were just told that, well, this guy probably did it. What if he didn't? They're supposed to live their life thinking that, thinking that maybe he did. Well, whether he did or not, they don't know for sure. Right. And even if if he did, they can't know for sure. If he didn't, then who did it? And and there were a lot of other killers going on around that those territories at the time. Oregon, Washington, California, there were some other big-name serial killers going on within those years. So maybe it was him, maybe it wasn't. But 
people want to know what happened to their loved ones. Bundy was happening during this time. Right. Gary Ridgway was happening during yes. this time. Right. You know, again, there's this pattern here of him getting off with things. I understand he's in prison. He wrote a post on MySpace saying that he was convicted of a murder, one murder. And other bad things. Could have done 44 and we'll never know. Those people will never have justice. So, you know, how how does this happen? And how does he turn into this monster if that's what he did? According to the record, he's not. You know, Ann Rule says that, well, he had an overbearing family. His, his mother was... Uh, was overprotective and he wanted to live up to the pressure of his sisters. I don't believe that. Very successful sisters, but yeah, right. I mean, he was a golden child growing up, so I don't know that he had that pressure on him early on, which is when this stuff is instilled in you. People want to say football caused it. Well, football's a val- a violent game, right? You play violent games, you do violent things, and they bring Steroids. up and they bring up, you know, Ray Carruth and the NFL, the National Felon League, as a lot of people refer to it. So there's Ray Lewis. There's been a few rays, but lots of guys who have done nasty things who, well, O.J. Simpson, as we mentioned, there's, it's a violent game and maybe it leads to violent behavior off the field, but that doesn't justify it, obviously. Uh, Aaron Hernandez, you know, they bring up yeah. Aaron Hernandez and they they, they kind of want to paint the picture that, you know, football, the NFL somehow causes this stuff. Football was the deterrent for him. Right. Football was the thing that, that, Stopped him from stopped doing this him nasty from doing crap this. for a while. So, like you said, if he if he'd have been been able to play or contribute to the team at all, maybe. What if he would have made the team? It's hard would, to would, say. Would forty four people's fortunes have changed? Right. What if he would have been drafted by somebody else who did need wide receivers? <laughs> you know, right. would forty four people not be brutally murdered by this guy? I, and I, I honestly, the way my mind works, and with all the true crime and and abnormal psychology books that I've read. I believe a sociopath is going to show his true colors if he's to that level. Maybe. Just like Adolf Hitler, as I alluded to earlier. You know, maybe he would have had the right blend to just stop. Maybe he'd have found another outlet. Hopefully that would have happened had that happened, but it didn't. And it's the perfect storm with these guys, unfortunately. What if he he would have gotten the help when he was 11 years old when his parents sent him to therapy? Right. What if that therapist wouldn't have said, well, you're just exploring your sexuality. Get out of my office. You know? What if his college coach wouldn't have hid the things that he did? What if his high school coaches wouldn't have hid the things that he did and expunged his record? What if Ron Stratton would have told NFL scouts about what he was doing? Well, and and it's a legitimate point, but I kept, I guess, my skepticism. The proof is in the fact that he was married three times and divorced twice while he was in prison. Sure. This guy never, he was always self-entitled. He always felt like he was above everything, and he there was never any remorse. There was never any of that. I don't know. But where does that self-entitlement come from? Right. It comes from being told your whole life you're not doing anything wrong when you are. Right. But it didn't occur to him at any point. So I don't know that football, no matter what level he'd have gotten to, would have been a deterrent. I believe that he'd have thought, well, now I'm a superstar on top of it, so now maybe I can do even more. It might have gotten even worse. I I don't mean to be a glass of half-empty kind of guy, but if if you can say maybe none of it would have happened, maybe more would have happened. It's as hard as it is to believe with the timeline we gave. You got a speculation in both directions, and I'm just afraid that a guy this far gone was never going to be fixed. My question is, having come from what seems like a non-dysfunctional family that was supportive and he was loved and all that stuff, maybe... I don't want to believe this, but maybe it's born into some guys. Maybe it's just born into them, and it's not. It's 
It's more who you are as opposed to what you were raised. Or maybe there was an uncle or a neighbor or something that did something to him early on, as we alluded to with Walter Ellis. Maybe he saw something, and this is how you can treat women, and you can get away with it. I I don't know. I see lots of excuses by people. As we said, Ann Rule wants to blame his mother. People, all kinds of people want to blame he football. Got sued. She, and the he actually she sued got, her right, for that. Reason. Right, he sued her. I don't think well, it was he because tried of that, suing. but you know, basically saying that he killed all these people. I he think tried right. suing her, yeah, right, and it, it didn't work. So you know, she had her theory. People say that you know, playing football kind of made him into this, which I don't believe at all. Jim Lawrence who I'd mentioned before, who is uh, an investigator in Portland's cold case department, says this. He says this to Sports Illustrated. Quote, there had to be something that happened to him sexually in his formative teenage years that caused him to look at sexual activity as power fulfillment as opposed to an area of procreation and of intimacy. I believe that halfway. He's saying that somebody abused him when he was a child. That's what he's alluding that's, to. That's how I always, so many of these, and I've read more books than I want to admit to about serial killers, and I mean actual individual serial killers, and books that are summing up what causes these guys to go there that way, because my philosophy is if we can figure out the most extreme psychology, maybe we can figure out the rest of us. That's how I've always put it. But most of these guys, whether the family, that the non-dysfunctional family knew about it or not, and I'm talking ex-girlfriends have told me this, there's an uncle or an you know or a neighbor or something that did something to them that other people don't know about to cause you to to think this is all right or to cause you to have the anger and the the misery inside to want to instill this onto somebody else what happened to you i truly believe that's what happens every time but maybe it is in certain individuals dna i i, I can never know but it's it's definitely a question that's People have been wondering about for centuries. I believe what Jim Lawrence is saying, partly. I don't believe he was, I don't believe anything happened to him when he was a child. I don't think he was abused. I don't think he was molested. There's no way we could know that, though. But I do think something happened to him in his formidable years that told him that sex is power. That's that's how we discussed Walter Ellis, too. We don't know that it had anything happened to him because, again, he didn't divulge any information. But I know what these things were that happened to him. I know that he did the things that he was doing when he was 11 and 13 years old, and I know that he was Why at that age did it happen if something, that that was okay. if something wasn't guiding him in that direction? Just like the other serial killer we mentioned, as I said. Something, whether it happened to them or somebody was guiding them along to show them that this is fine. He was being told that it's it's okay to think that violating other people by exposing yourself in front of them for your own good was okay. And we he don't was told know that. that that was good. We don't know that for sure. It sure seems like it. But again, we were told we, we a therapist told him that he's just exploring his sexual his sexuality. I Nothing happened to him. I understand, but that's I, what happened to him in his formidable years to tell him that sex should be used as power because he was let go. You because he was told that there's a pattern of this. Everything he did wrong through his formidable years from elementary school through college, everything he did wrong, you're okay. I understand. You're okay, man. He had a sense of entitlement that most of us will never understand. It was given to him. My point is he thought he was above the law and that he could do no wrong, no matter how wrong it was. Even he had to have some idea that it was wrong. But I don't believe that a therapist telling him that these 
nasty behaviors he was already enacting that most kids that age, I'm sorry, even to this day, I don't believe most of us do that. But I also don't believe that a therapist saying it's all right was the main no, factor. No, it's, it's part of a string of it. Sure. It's part of a string of being told your whole formidable years that all of these things you're doing, we're going to wipe away. We're going to expunge your record. But Nobody's going to know about this stuff. We're going to hide it. But what I'm getting at is what made him whip it out in the first place. Did he learn that from somebody else? Did he see somebody else do it to him? Did he see some somebody else do it to somebody else? I believe it happened before the entitlement. Why did he think that was all right? Granted, I was a little boy and I ran naked across the neighbor's yard. My mom will tell you that. He was at an age where you kind of know a little better than that. And, and he was doing it regularly and he was doing it to adults and he was... Maybe just being told it was all right, but I don't know that you go that haywire because of that. I, I just, I don't know. And like I said, you still got to question it. Maybe, maybe the, some people were born evil. The the reason he was doing it is an issue, and and the issue was never addressed, in my opinion. It, right. it wasn't. Well, for sure, yeah. I, I don't disagree I think with he that. Was, I think he was failed. Look, I'm, I'm the most personal responsibility guy in the world. But this guy repeatedly, repeatedly through his formidable years was failed by people that could have maybe, maybe changed this. Put him in a different direction. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. By a therapist, by coaches, by counselors, right? scouts, whatever it would be, continually being told, we're going to fix this for you. And, and, right. And I don't think that what I'm saying is wrong. I, it's not wrong. I, no, no. Let me, I, I believe that possibly something happened to him that he saw that action, but maybe he came up with it on his own. And the fact that he kept doing it and kept being told it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Maybe that does build you up to this, to this psychopath where you can just start murdering people and robbing and, and not having any kind of remorse or any kind of compassion whatsoever. Maybe he was born dead inside to begin with, and this just, who knows what the ingredients are. That's why I read these books, because I'm fascinated by what causes somebody to go in this direction. But but it continues on now, even through convictions, where we say, no remorse. you killed one person, and we know you killed a lot more than that, but their names aren't even known. He killed 44 people, we know five of them. We don't even know their names. And we're supposed to be told that we should remember the victims. We should remember the victims. How can you? And shame on the state of Oregon. Shame on the state of California for telling these families, we think we know he did it. We're not quite sure. He killed up to 44 people. Your daughter might have been one of them. But you know what? Let's just go with that. Shame on them. And shame on us for allowing that. Shame on us as a society for not questioning that. He's been in prison for 40-some years. And we're, we're just okay with this. I'm not okay with this. Amen, brother.